0: In our split sermon Art Williams heart palpitations and defibrillation Excuse me. Heart palpitations and defibrillation. Before we get started, I'm going to need a victim, I mean a volunteer. (laughs) But there are many events happening in the world of economics today. And today, we're going to take a a certain look at economic data and some political changes, our reactions to them, and consider the validity of our response, and if any alterations are required to our responses to these things. Post-World War II economic growth, the most significant economic factor was technology. The application of technology provided goods and services that made man's life easier. And it not only created companies and jobs, but it created whole industries. For example, when I was a child, my mom and dad would go down in the basement and shovel coal into a furnace so we would have heat. It wasn't within a decade, though that was replaced by a fuel oil burning stove or furnace with a thermostat that was electronically controlled, having electronic controlled valves that would allow the fuel oil to flow to the furnace as required. And this was just, it's just an illustration of the technologies that were available. But technology has changed just about every aspect of how things were done. The first large-scale computer was really used in World War II to decode German ciphers, and that was the, the tip of the iceberg for the computer industry, that both large industrial and both home home, and home computers. And this went on into the industrial applications for manufacturing automobiles, aerospace, steel, and the light industries such as consumer electronics and household devices. And this facilitated the build-out of the internet and the cell phone systems, and today we're seeing the integration of the internet, the cell phone, and the television all into one. The heart of this technology was electronics and electronic components. Vacuum tubes, resistors, capacitors, inductors, transformers, wire, solder, hardware, Subsequently, being replaced by integrated circuits, and then after that, microprocessors, flat screens, high-speed, high-voltage, high-power, low-power, small devices, transportable devices that we can carry around with us now, and we can listen to the Boston Symphony back in 1700s. If you wanted to do it, you had to go to the theater. And indeed, the capacity for manufacturing products worldwide has just exploded. Years ago, it would take 20 to 40 years to saturate a market. And today, for example, when I was in the workforce, I ran a manufacturing plant. We had two product lines. One of those lines was circuit boards. Here's my cell phone. <coughs> my, my manufacturing plant with three high-speed, highly automated circuit board manufacturing lines in one year could manufacture 285 million circuit boards for cell phones. That means if there were four other plants in the world like mine, we could make 1.1 billion circuit boards for cell phones. We could, satur- we could give a cell phone for every human being on the face of the earth within seven years. So no longer do we have a market saturation of 20 to 40 years, we can do it in six years. That changes the whole economic playing field. Because if you notice, when you go out and sign a new contract for your cell phone, your old phone's been obsoleted. They have to do that. They couldn't keep their plant manufacturing phones otherwise. There wouldn't be a market. So they have to breed, bring in new technology and they have to, I think, actually meter the technology that they give out to society. And if you asked any of the Wall Street professionals in the past 40 years what will drive the American economy over the next decade, the answer was always technology. And recently there was a significant event, and this happened on a a Bloomberg television interview with Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner when he was asked that question, what will drive the American economy over the next 10 years? And his answer was shocking because he didn't say technology. He said, and you'll never believe it, agriculture. Think about that. If we, took a, if we take a quick look at the US GDP, which is the US gross domest, domestic product, which is said to be the sum total of all goods and services produced over a specific time, we find that agriculture contributes only 1% of the entire US GDP. That's very small. What that means, if all the numbers stay the same, for agriculture to give a 1% increase to our GDP, agriculture growth would have to be 100%. That's not going to happen. A tremendous growth for a mature industry is 30%. So it'll be interesting to see if Treasury Secretary Geithner's uh, prophecy comes true, and if it does, how in the world that would ever happen. And one of the factors that I just became aware of in the last six months was that government spending is included in the GDP figure. I did not know that. When government spending is removed from the GDP calculation, the net results for the U.S. GDP over the past 10 years is there has been no increase in the GDP, okay? And I want to move on to what this means for Europe and what's going on in Europe today. But before I do, I have a comment that I want to interject for our young people because Between the ages, and by young people I mean between the ages of 18 and 28, because between those ages we make some of the most major decisions of of our entire lives. It's going to impact us personally, who we are, what we are. And I don't necessarily know, since I don't have any kids, uh, what young people would want to hear in a message, but I do know what they need to hear and that's information, guidance, and awareness about the pitfalls and dangers in life and life's decisions, a society that today is filled with landmines and situations and relationships that are ready to blow up in their face. On an interview, one of the, it was either a senator or a representative from Oklahoma recently on TV, said that two out of five college graduates could not find employment in their career choice. That's 40%. And what validates this is a class action lawsuit up in New York that claimed to place, it was a law school, by the way, Trevor, Uh, (coughs) they claimed to place 85% of their graduates while only placing 45%. One of the students interviewed said he now has a $250,000 college debt and he's working as a waiter in a restaurant. You have to ask yourself the question at some point, is college education worth it? Is a trade worth it? I'm not giving you answers. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm trying to give you awareness. There's better sources than me to look at some of these things and make some of your decisions. Uh, all as I know from my little understanding is healthcare and medical facilities seems to be an area that has some future. And if you like to do something well, you can learn it. To, if you like to do something, you can learn to do it well, and you can make a career of it. But also be aware that if you make a career of anything, it will at some point become a grind, and you probably will be a slave to it, and then you may lose your enjoyment from it. Anyway, enough said on that. I want to get back to Europe. If Brian would put my chart up there, if we can do that, <clears throat> there it is. I'm primarily concerned. Uh, interested in the very last column to your to your far right, the first number is 53. What this chart is, it's divided up by region. First there's Europe, there's North America, and then there's Orient. And the very last column shows the degree to which government expenditure supports that country's gross domestic product. And this gives some light into why Europe's in problems, having problems, and why we're heading down the same way France the f- very first country up there government expenditures account for 53% of their gross domestic product Italy 49 United Kingdom 47 Greece 47% Portugal 46 Germany 44 Poland 43 Ireland 42 Spain 41 the United States 39 and just as a comparison China 21 So you see what happens under the austerity budgets that they're talking about integrating in Europe, specifically Greece and Spain and Italy. If they cut government spending, they're cutting their GDP. If they cut their GDP, they're cutting their tax revenue. If they cut their tax revenue, they won't have the money to pay off the debt that they're trying to pay off in their austerity programs. Spain announced this morning they're going to miss their austerity budget by over 8%. Italy already did that, and Italy has already raised their taxes 3%. In the recent Greek elections, they threw out the austerity people and said, no, we want that. We want people that are going to give us stimulus money. That just props everything up longer and longer and longer. So we'll see what happens. They're going to have new elections in Greece. Um, I think it's in July sometime. In Revelation 18, and I'm not going to turn there. I'm just going to mention it. I found a, a statement in my Bible, a note, comment. Because Revelation 18 talks about kings and governments being integrated into the economics. And they're both getting themselves wealthy over it. They being the inter- individuals that are involved in it. And my note in my Bible used a, a term that I, I kind of liked. It said, at the end there will be a political economy and looking at the government expenditures being part of the gross domestic product around the world that indeed seems to be the case and with that I'd like to go over to Daniel 8 because there's an interesting scripture there we don't talk too much about at least I haven't heard about it but it's interesting because what it seems to be saying 8 21. And the rough goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. This is generally accepted to be Alexander the Great and his empire. Continuing in verse 22. <clears throat> now that being broken, that is the first king, whereas four stood up for it, <clears throat> four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in its power. And that's what happened. Alexander the Great died at a very young age and it's not clear whether he succumbed to a natural disease or if he was poisoned but after him four kingdoms emerged they were in Egypt Syria Greece and what today is Turkey continuing in verse 23 and in the latter time of their kingdom now That may be a statement someone wants to disagree with. Um, I suspect it means the latter time being the time right before the end of their kingdom. Because both Greece, Italy, and Syria are all mentioned in end time prophecies. And in the latter time of their kingdom when the transgressions are come to the full, transgressions are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up, and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. My Bible references Second 2 Thessalonians 2.9. Power not by his power, but by spiritual darkness. We won't turn there. And he shall destroy wonderfully, and shall prosper, and shall continue, and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy also he shall cause deceit to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in the heart, and by peace shall destroy many. And he also shall stand up against the prince of princes. Notice, prince is with a capital. Now, if we flip over to Daniel 9.25, in my Bible, it's one page over. Daniel 9.25 Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, comma, the Prince, capital letter Prince. Okay. The Prince that this fight, this, this Prince that this King fights against, is the Messiah. And it goes on in verse 25, but he shall be broken without hand. We can go back to Daniel two, forty-five. The image, the feet on the image is destroyed by a stone cut out without hands. Interesting. It seems to be saying that the end time political beast comes out of one of these countries. Egypt, Syria, Greece, or Turkey. Doesn't say he necessarily rules over them, just like Hitler was Austrian, but ruled over Germany. Napoleon was Sicilian, but he ruled over France. And it's interesting because these three countries have been in the news probably for the last year. Egypt overthrew their president or dictator, Hasmin Mubarak and is now ruled by a military military committee that's going to have elections the 1st of July. The two primary parties are both in favor of radical Islam. Syria is in a state of civil unrest, bordering on civil war. And then there is Greece with all of its economic difficulties. Where this all leads to will become evident over time. Perhaps it's the start of the final seven-year period. The Laodicean church the wearing out of the saints of the most high, the persecution of the saints, the tribulation, the day of the Lord, the trumpet plagues, the bowl plagues, all concluding with the battle of Armageddon. So when we hear these things or read these things, it can give us heart palpitations, make us apprehensive about the future, and perhaps just downright fearful and that's part of being human, for we cannot be impervious to such information when we believe it with our whole hearts. But can we, but can we uh, enhance our apprehensions incorrectly by what we believe or what we don't believe? Perhaps an unbalanced emphasis of negative scriptures. Or perhaps how we feel about ourselves you're not good enough, we don't measure up. How we believe God looks at us and our shortcomings, does he really love us? Can he really love us? We compare ourselves to a higher standard and find ourselves not measuring up. Perhaps we compare ourselves to the apostles and say, what have I done? Well, defibrillation begins at the church of God, just like judgment begins at the, at the church of God. And if we turn to 1 Peter 4.17, I know we all know this scripture very, very well, <laughs> but I like to read it anyway. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? This is a great point in which I could launch off on a fire and brimstone sermon, or I could launch off on a sermon or a message of hope. I think a message of hope is more appropriate because, you see, if we know we're being judged now, we can do something about it. And by following the instructions that we received at Passover, continuing to judge ourselves throughout the year, then he doesn't have to. We confess it. We leave the guilt behind because his blood is effective for all of our sins, our past sins, our current sins, and our future sins. If we retain the guilt of our past sins, it's akin to having a certain level of unbelief that his blood really hasn't covered our sins, he really hasn't forgiven us. The thing is, we have to forgive ourselves and go on and form a proper relationship with him. So what do we believe? Do you realize that one of the reasons why, when we read these scriptures, they're unsettling, is because we believe them. We believe they're the truth. So what value is there in believing? Romans 4. Romans 4, verses 1 through 4. It's about Abraham. What shall we say then, that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he has something of which to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, And it was counted on to him righteousness. Now to him that works is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. And continuing down in verse 20, But he staggered not at the promise, he being Abraham, of God through unbelief, but was strong in the faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. The very fact that we believe in the end time scriptures, God is giving, imputing to us, righteousness. That's pretty positive, isn't it? I got more of those. I got another one. This this one really... I'll get there. I can't get ahead of myself. But if we go on to James, because he talks about works here. James tells us, that we need to have works. James 2, 18 through 20. The purpose of the works is to demonstrate our faith. Now James, I'm not gonna turn there, but in previous verses, same chapter, 14 through 16, he uses as an example helping people with their physical needs. And if you go through the scriptures, there are many other aspects in how we can help people. In fact, some of us help people every day in our jobs. We do it by raising godly children, we do it by helping our neighbors, we do it by social and community activities, we do it by church activities, and we do it through using our personal assets as well as our personal skills. So we have belief, which is imputed to us for righteousness, because we believe. Then we have works where we demonstrate our belief, but there's more required. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and and of angels and have not love, charity, I am become as sounding bronze or a tinkling silver. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. Love's pretty important. You see, because you could actually hate somebody and go out and, quote, do something nice for them because you want to get them out of the way. Then it's an old statement. You keep your friends closer, but you keep your enemies close you keep your friends close, but you keep your enemies closer, you see, because then you got your thumb over them. You can manipulate them and control them. Okay? So our attitude. So when we have belief, we have works, we have attitude. Are you Laodicean? Do you ever feel like you're Laodicean? We all know what Laodicean is. Do you ever feel like I'm inadequate? I need to be doing more for Christ and not doing enough. I should, I should have more. I should be more of what Jesus is. Do you agonize over that or worry about that? And maybe feel like i got to go out to, to do something about it. The very fact that you're worried about it means you're not Laodicean. Because the Laodicean says, I'm rich, increased with goods, and have need of nothing. He says, me and God, we're cool, man. No problem. If you're worried about it, you're concerned about it. And you're probably taking action to do something about it. I wanna go to an example of works in faith, Joshua chapter two. Joshua chapter 2 And <clears throat> Joshua the son of Nun sent out sent out of Shittim two men to spy secretly saying go view the land even Jericho and they went and they came into the harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there and behold it was told the king of Jericho saying behold there came men in here tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country and the king of Jericho sent on to, said unto Rahab, saying, bring forth the men who are come to thee, who are entered into thine house, for they have come to search out all the country. And the woman took the two men and hid them and said thus, there came men unto me, but I knew not from where they were. And it came to pass about the time of shutting the, the gate, when it was dark, that the men went out. Where the men went, I know not. Pursue after them quickly for you shall overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof of the house and hid them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order upon the roof. And the men pursued after the way to the Jordan unto the fords. And as soon as they who pursued after them were gone out, they shut the gate. Interesting. She, she, she lied. Didn't she? She lied to protect the lives of two men from Israel. And she had good reason to lie. And we'll get into that in verse 10. Let's go to verse 10. This is Rahab speaking. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you. When you came out of Egypt, and what ye did unto the two kings of the Amorites, who were on the other side of the Jordan, Shehan and Og, whom you utterly destroyed, and as soon as we heard these things, our heart did melt, neither neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you, for your Lord God, he is God in heaven above and in the earth beneath." Now I pray you, swear unto me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you will also show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token. So she lied to protect the two men that Joshua sent out because she believed in the God of Israel. And how was she rewarded? Rewarded. Go to Matthew 1, go to um, chapter 1, verse 5 chapter 1 is the genealogy of Christ verse 5 and Solomon begot Boaz of Rahab Boaz's mother was Rahab the lineage of Christ life isn't always clean life isn't always clear cut We have the examples of Paul and his writings talking about his shortcomings and the race that he conducts going on to victory and continuing that. And one of the things that I particularly myself find uh, inspiring is to hear testimonials from people and what God has done in their life. And I was going to ask for some testimonials, but I know many of you have... Testimonials you could give David and Fran and, and, and Larry Novella and Matthew and Renee. And if I ask Aletha, then I better also call IHOP and order in breakfast for tomorrow morning because we're going to be here for a while. But if we turn to Obadiah, rather than doing our own testimonials, let's turn over to Obadiah, very small. Book of the Bible, one chapter, verse 15. We're gonna start talking about the day of the Lord. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As thou has done, it shall be done unto them. thee. Thy reward shall return upon thy own head. And as for you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions, and the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh a flame? Hmm. How can that be? I thought they were going into captivity. Hmm. and it goes on to say the house of Esau for stumbling and they shall kindle in them and devour them and there shall not be any more any remaining of the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken it and if we go over to Zechariah 12 and I'm not saying Ephraim and Manasseh don't have some level of captivity but there seems to be more to it And there certainly does not seem to be any total obliteration. In Zechariah 12, 4 through 6, In that day, says the Lord, I will smite every house... And it's talking about Jerusalem here. Let's go back to verse 3. Um, Zechariah 3, Brian, if you can get there, I don't know. In that day I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all peoples, and all that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, Though all the nations of the earth be gathered together against it, in that day, it says the Lord, I will smite every horse with every horse with terror, and his rider with madness. And I will open my eyes upon the house of Judah, and I will smite every horse of the peoples with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their hearts, There. The inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength in the Lord of hosts. Their governor still in Judah, even after Jerusalem has been attacked. And they rally the inhabitants, continuing in verse 6, in that day will I make the governors of Judah like a hearth of fire among the wood, and like the torch of fire in a sheath. And they shall devour all the people round about, on the right hand and on the left. And Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. That's pretty confident, isn't it? Now, sure, there are the, the scriptures that tell us, and back in Isaiah 13, I think it is, it says, the Lord will make man as rare as fine gold. And here in Zechariah, one chapter over, I mean, chapter 14, it says, he will bring one-third of Israel through the fire. We don't have to worry about that if we're doing what we're supposed to do and we shouldn't be having an, an, a guilt complex of negativity so that we can't stand before him confidently turn to first john first john 3 19 and 20 <clears throat> And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, even then we have confidence toward God. If we have a guilt in our being, or if we are fearful where we stand with God, evaluate that feeling and sh- to see that it's valid. Because if it's not valid, it can simply be a poor self-image. It can be because of your physical situations that tend to pull us down. I'm not going to turn there, but in 1 John 4, 4, it says, He is great; greater is he that is in you than is in the world. And in Luke twelve thirty two it says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom.